0: All right, two weeks ago, y'all looked at this, Ananias and Sapphira with David Scott. To me, it's one of the two most disturbing uh, stories in the New Testament. You've got these two guys who come to Peter. So there's a picture. The reason I showed that is that I think it's a lady in the back. I'm not sure if that's a man or a woman with her hand on her face. I don't think anybody actually did that. So you got a guy falling down dead, and I don't think that's what he looked at like when he fell down dead either. But she's just kind of going, "Hmm, what do we make of this?" I don't think that was the response of most people when Ananias. So Ananias had a piece of property and he sold it, and he pretended to give a hundred percent of it to the to the church. He didn't have to. He could have kept it all for himself. He could have given half, but whatever. But he he made it sound like he gave 100%, and he didn't, and Peter called him on it. And and he says, why are you, and Ananias lies. He said, yeah, this is what I sold it for. I sold it for for $100, that's what I'm giving you. And he really sold it for 125 and he kept 25 for himself. And Peter says, well, why would you lie to the Holy Spirit? And just like that, Ananias falls down dead. And then his wife comes three hours later named Sapphira, and Peter says, hey, did you sell it for $100? She's like, yeah. And he said, the feet of the guys who Drug your husband off. They're coming to get you, and she falls down dead. Just like that. Amazing. We hear that. Again, to me, it's one of the two most disturbing stories in the New Testament because it doesn't sound much like the God that we know. We know him to be kind and gracious and compassionate and forgiving, and we see this immediate judgment on something that we may say is really that big a deal. You're going to kill them over their giving record. Is that, is that what we're doing here? But you see the Holy Spirit is holy and he's at the beginning of the formation of this church. He's making sure everybody knows who's actually in charge and that he can't be manipulated and he can't be toyed with. And normally judgment is delayed by our life. And that is the graciousness and the compassion and the patience and the kindness of God leads to repentance. This time they just God just removes the interval between the sin and the judgment for it. And so that's what y'all looked at a couple of weeks ago, and then diving right off of that, we see this snapshot that Luke gives of the way the people in the city of Jerusalem, everything we're reading now, is still centered in Jerusalem. We don't know the exact time frame. Uh, Stephen is the first martyr, and he dies in 34 AD, and that happens in chapter 7. So this is sometime between Jesus' death, around 30, 27, 28, 29, 30 AD, and In 34 AD, so this is, things are happening at a pretty rapid clip, and Luke zooms back and says, here's how all the people in Jerusalem are reacting to this new group of people, these Christians. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from all the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. And so we see the two major responses of the people, just the regular people. There's two major responses. Some guys are scared. They're going, we're not after that thing with Ananias and Sapphira. Nobody's doing this. They're not doing that. They're going, what, what just happened here? What just happened here? You can imagine in the span of what it, whatever it is, a year or two years, you've got thousands of people responding to a message. These are all Jews. So they've spent all of their life hearing the promises of God. And now you've got these 12 men who are saying those promises have been fulfilled. The Messiah has come. We know he was the Messiah because God raised him from the dead. The Holy Spirit has been given to everyone who follows this Messiah. And these 12 men are performing signs and wonders and miracles pretty regularly. People are, even Peter's shadow is healing people. And so you can imagine the bandwagon around that. People wanting to be a part of that. Again, you've got thousands and thousands of people who are legitimately in the group who are legitimately following Jesus. And as with any uh, group, of pe- any people movement, anytime you've got that many people moving in a direction, you're going to have people around the edges. Some people you know are, I'm sure somebody was selling t-shirts. And I'm sure somebody was selling little, sl- hey, Peter sat in this chair and I'll, I'll sell it to you and you sit on it and he'll heal you of hemorrhoids or whatever your thing is. He's doing, you know they're doing those things. Anytime there are groups of people, the tents pop up and people start selling things. And you've got all of the bandwagoners. Everybody's like, oh, this is the cool thing to do. This is the popular thing to do. Everybody's a part of this. So I want to be a part of it too. And then Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. And all of those guys around the edge are going, never mind. That's not what I thought it was. Um, And and it draws this line. And so nobody who's half-hearted. No one who's partially committed dares to connect with them because they don't want to be next. But then you have people who are legitimately taken in, who are legitimately captivated by the gospel message, by who Jesus is, by the love that this community has for one another. And they all jump in. And so we have regularly people being added to their number. And so that's the two major responses of the people in Jerusalem. And again, at this point, as far as we know, everyone who's saying yes is a Jew. At this point, they're all Jew- the, the church is completely Jewish men and women who have who have been become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of their Old Testament promises, prophecies, and hopes. And so now we're going to pick up in verse 17. I'm going to read a long section. This is the response of the Sanhedrin. Those are the religious leaders of the day. That's the 70 men who were the ran basically ran Jerusalem uh, for the Jews. Then the high priest. That's a leader of the temple and all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, the apostles entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the excuse me and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin and to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. They did that in chapter four, if you remember. He said you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, "We must obey God rather than human beings." The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Sometimes men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census. That's around when Jesus was born. And he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail but if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So the, the Sadducees are in charge of the temple. And they're jealous of all of the things that the apostles are doing and the success that they're having. Again, this has been going on for months. Maybe we're stretching into years at this point. It's hard to to nail it down. But you've got the the apostles are performing miracles. There are thousands of people who are... saying yes to their message, who are now meeting in homes, and they're listening every day to what the apostles are saying. They've developed this whole new community. They're still fully participating in the life of the temple. They're, they're Jewish through and through. And they see what they're doing as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, pro, uh, excuse me, promises, prophecies, and hopes. They still see themselves completely as Jews. So they're continuing to go to the temple twice a day for sacrifices, and, and, and the temple leadership, are, they're getting frustrated. They, they feel like they're losing. They're jealous, and so they bring these guys in. They've done this before. In chapter 4, we don't know how, far, how long ago that was in terms of time. They bring in Peter and John, and they arrest them, and they spend a night in jail, and they threaten them and say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. you got to quit. And they continue to do that, and so they bring them in, and they put them in jail in a place where people can see them. A public jail, they put them in jail publicly. It's, I think, meant to embarrass the disciples, the apostles. And it's also meant as a deterrent. Hey, if y'all want to associate with these guys, they're, like, they're they're on the wrong side of this thing. And we're showing you that. These guys are not good Jews. They're not teaching you the truth. You don't want to be associated with these men. And then somehow, and the Bible doesn't say at all, miraculously, an angel rel- Delivers, releases, sets free these twelve men from this jail cell. We don't know what it looks like. There's no description given. We know when the messenger sent the next day, the the jail cell is still locked, and the guards are standing up. So that means they're awake. It does. They may maybe the angel put them to sleep at some point. We don't know. There's no information. But these twelve men miraculously are miraculously escape or delivered from jail. And the angel says, you need to go right back to the place where you got arrested and you need to preach the same message that got you arrested. So the next morning when all the crowds gather for the morning sacrifice, which is daily happening in Judaism, they're they're there. And they're preaching this same message. The Sanhedrin gets together and says, hey, go get those guys from jail. Bring them in here. And somebody says, they're not there. They're not there. We don't know where they are. And then somebody else comes in and says, they're actually preaching in the temple again. Can you imagine what's going on in that room with those 70 men? They just arrested these guys. They just threw them in jail. Somehow all 12 of them escaped, and they didn't run away. They went right back to the scene of the crime, and they're doing it again. Think how upset you would be if you had spent your adult life having people listen to you, your adult life having people respect you. Maybe even fear you a little bit because you're a representative of God to them. They do what you say. Now you've got these 12, according to chapter 4, uneducated men. They don't know anything about anything. And they continue to defy you. And it looks like they're winning over the hearts of the people. Your shadow doesn't heal anybody. And they've got thousands of people flocking to them every day. And you can't shut it down. They're furious. And so they bring the apostles in. Notice they don't even ask them about the jail. They don't even bring that up. That's not one of the charges. You would think, like, whatever that would be, escaping from jail would be an issue. They don't, even, they don't even talk. They're at a loss. They don't know what to say about that. So they just say, here are the two things. You're teaching what we told you not to teach, and you're telling everybody that we're responsible for the death of Jesus, and we don't appreciate it. We told you to stop preaching in his name, and we're not the ones that killed him. Peter's response is not a defense. If you go through and look, it's just it's a testimony. It's a witness. He doesn't defend what they do. He says, we're not going to listen to y'all. If our choices are obey you or obey God, we're going to obey God. If to, in order to obey you, it means we have to disobey what God has said to us. Remember, Jesus said, be witnesses beginning in Jerusalem. If in order to obey you, that means we can't be witnesses, then we're sorry. We're going to continue to obey him, this one who you killed, who God raised from the dead. This message we have is way too important for us to shut it down. This is the opportunity for our people to be forgiven. That's what he says. Jesus is the way to reconcile relationship with the Father. We have got to let everybody know about that. We're not going to be quiet just because it's getting under your skin. And so they're ready to kill them, all 12 of them. And then this Pharisee named Gamaliel, he actually was Paul's rabbi. They're already Sadducees, minority Pharisees. But there are fewer Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, but they're way more popular with the people. Remember when the temple guard came, uh, the captain came to arrest the 12, it says they didn't use force because he was afraid of being stoned. We read earlier that these guys, even though people were afraid to join them, the half-hearted, the bandwagon guys were afraid to join them, they still held them in high honor and high esteem. These guys were loved by the people. And so the, the, the Sadducees are going, the Pharisees are really popular. And if this is one of the Pharisees saying, hey, I don't know if you should do this, I think there's a political calculation there. And they're going, maybe we should back off. It says they were persuaded by Gamaliel's speech. I don't think they were persuaded by his logic. They definitely weren't. They didn't move theologically on who they think Jesus is. I think it was just a, it was a calculation of saying if we can't get these guys on board with us, if we can't get the Pharisees on board with us, then we can't get the people on board with us. And if we do something and it causes a revolt or an uprising, we're the ones who are going to pay for that the Roman government's going to come down on us because part of our responsibility is to keep everybody peaceful and happy. So Gamaliel talks about two guys. We know something about Judas. We don't know anything about the guy before, about these other two guys who drew a following. And when they died, all their followers dispersed. And he just says, listen, the same thing's going to happen. Y'all all said Jesus is dead. None of you Sadducees believe in resurrection, so that means he's still on the ground. So if he's dead, history shows us all of his followers Will eventually disperse. It's going to come to nothing. Don't rile everybody up over that. But if God is in this, you don't want to oppose it. If God is in this, you don't want to be standing and wrestling against him on this. It says they were persuaded again. I think it was just a political calculation at that point. I could be wrong. They bring the disciples the apostles back in and they flog them. It's easy to skip over that. Thirty-nine whips lashes 39 lashes with a calf skin whip according to Deuteronomy 25 you couldn't whip anybody more than 40 times they did 39 just in case they miscounted they didn't want to break the law and they're wailing on people so 13 on your chest 26 on your back with your shirt off that hurts that's what they get in chapter 4 when they're arrested it says they don't know what the the sanhedrin doesn't know what to do with them so they're just threatened. This time they want to kill them and they don't, but they beat them. 39 lashes each. And what is their response? Rejoicing because they were counted worthy by God to suffer for his name. Amazing response to that level of torture, really. And they keep doing what they're doing. They continue to preach. They continue to teach in the temple courts. They don't even get – they don't – go underground. They don't move to the outskirts. They continue in the same place where they have been arrested now twice. They go back and they continue to preach and teach the same message. So for us, we can look at that and kind of go, well, what's the, what, what are the connection points for us? That scene is so far removed from where most of us live our lives. And so where are the points of connection? And I thought of two. You may have some others, other ways that that story spoke to you. I thought of two. One, this idea that Jesus came to set us free. I'm spiritualizing a little bit. So these 12 apostles were in jail, and the angel comes and sets them free. And that's one of the things that Jesus promises for us. Part of his mission statement in Luke 4 is to proclaim freedom for the captives. He says in John that the one who he sets free is free indeed. We see he sets us free from sin, he sets us free from Satan. He sets us free from the law. You can see that in Galatians 5, that uh, we have, we've been set free. For freedom's sake, we've been set free. So you can see some of those things there. For freedom in Christ, we've been set free, so don't be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Paul's talking about religious rules there. We're not bound by those things any longer. So a, a big part of what Jesus came to do was, set us free. That's a promise that he's made for us. What's interesting to me when I look at Acts chapter 5, and you need to take this for what it's worth. I don't know that I would necessarily apply this across the board all the time, but I want you to take it for what it's worth and I want you to hear it. The apostles are set free and sent right back into the situation they were just delivered from. They're not set free for their own comfort. They're not set free for their own safety. The reason they're set free is because their calling is to be witnesses and they can't do it from jail. They're set free for the sake of obedience. They're set free in order to get this message that Jesus is the Messiah and that by trusting in him, the Jews can be reconciled to God. Their sins can be forgiven. This life-changing message. They're set free because that word needs to go out and they're the ones who've been entrusted with it. So the angel doesn't say, hey, I'm going to get you guys out of jail and then y'all need to go to Damascus or y'all need to go to the desert or you need to take this thing underground. He says, you go right back where you were. And notice the results for them. They get beaten. They get pulled back in. They go willingly, actually. No force is required to bring them in. And they get tortured, 39 lashes from an adult with a whip who does not like them. That's going to hurt. That's the the result for them. That's what their freedom buys them, so to speak. They use the freedom that they've been given, this being set free from jail, in order to then serve and bless others. And I would say for us, and again, I want you to try to filter and sift this into your own life. The reason we're set free is also one of the reasons we're set free because God loves us, we're set free because he's good. We're set free because he's driving back the kingdom of darkness. We're also set free in order to love and serve and bless others. You see that there in Galatians 5. We don't want to use the freedom that we've been given by Jesus for our own selfish ends. We don't want to use the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us for our for ourselves. When I say, hey, God has set me free from sin. He set me free from Satan. He set me free from death so that I can then go and serve and bless other people who are still in chains. So I want you to think about what exactly have you been set free from? Some of you have been set free from anxiety or fear. Some of you have been set free from the need to perform. Some of you have been set free from abusive relationships and the guilt and the resentment and the bitterness that are associated with those things. Some of you have been set free like you are very aware of your sinfulness and you've been set free from the guilt from all of those things. Some of you have been set free from addictions. What are the things that you've been set free from? The one or the two or the three? What are you doing with that freedom? Have you ever thought about using that freedom to go back to people who are in the same chains that you were and to help them. Have you ever thought about, God, is there a way the the credibility or the authority, whatever that is, because you've set me free from this very specific entanglement. Maybe I've got some credibility. Maybe I've got some authority to go back to people who are entangled in the same way. And I want to help them as well. Or have you moved on? Don't hear that as a criticism. It's just a question. You know what you've been set free from. Do you know what you've been set free for? And some of the for is other people. One of the reasons we've been set free is so that we can set others free as well. And one of the areas, not always and not only, but one of the areas where you're going to be most effective And serving and blessing and loving other people are in the places that you have been yourself. So if you're, you may be in the middle of a bit of a battle right now where you don't feel free. You are struggling and you are wrestling and let's pray for those circumstances to change. And while you're in the midst of those circumstances, let's pray for you to be a witness to who God is and who Jesus is. And let's do all of that with a mind that says, who else, who, who can I be helping? Maybe I'm just one step down the road from somebody else bro. you're turning around and looking for anyone else. Second thing I thought of, this idea, what Gamaliel says, if God's in it, you can't stop it and you don't want to be fighting him. And if he's not in it, it's going to die anyway. So why waste your time and your energy? And I was thinking about that in my own life, kind of using that as a springboard in a way to say, is there anything that I'm engaged in? That somebody could say, man, if God's in that, you can't stop that. Not, it's not me. Or is everything in my life so small and so doable in my own strength? I read this book the other day. It's by about a guy named George Mueller. It's tough facial hair <laughs> there. It's tough. He wasn't known for his looks. He was known for his faith. He was born in Prussia in 1805. He died in 1898. He had a really wild first 20, 21 years, and then he became a Christian and spent 10 years really kind of in the school of the Spirit, learning some pretty significant lessons from God. He's most famous and most known for the fact that he uh, ran, built and ran five children's homes in Bristol, England for over 60 years. And he did so uh, in, by faith. So he, he became convicted pretty early in his Christian life. He went to seminary, and he was trying to be a missionary, and those doors were closed to him. And uh, he wound up getting, being sent to England, and he was a preacher. And he became convinced pretty early that he didn't need to take a salary, that he needed to depend 100% on God. And the way to depend on God was to not take a salary and to never make his needs known. In, in 60 years of ministry, and I'll show you in a minute all of the things that he was involved in, he never sent out a fundraising letter, ever. If people asked him, George, what do you need? He never told them. He didn't do anything to make his needs known to anyone who could meet them. And he said, what I'm doing is I want people to know that they can trust God. His number one goal was not to take care of these kids. That was number two. Number one for him he said i want to demonstrate that people will not that if people trust in god he will not let them down he said i want men that's the way he talked i want men and women to know that god is a prayer hearing god that was his phrase a prayer hearing god and he will not let them down if they trust fully in him show this slide please josh so from 1834 until his death in 1898 his 60 plus years this is what he was involved in. Those are totals on the right. He was involved in seven day schools. Over 81,000 kids came through. 12 home Sunday schools. 33,000 kids came through. He distributed almost 2 million Bibles and parts of Bibles. That's not he, he didn't personally hand those out. He supported financially those things. He supported 115 missionaries, 3.1 million books. He helped to send out. And then he built these five children's homes, large children's homes. They could hold 2,000 kids at a time, and over 10,000 kids came through them over the course of his 60 years when he was in leadership. How much do you think that costs? You don't know. It cost 1.5, about, million pounds. It's about what came to him over the course of those 60 years. So I did the math twice on two different calculators because I didn't believe it. But you can go back and look me up, and some of you are going to, and that's fine. $244 million is what came through his hands over the course of 60 years, and he never asked for a penny, not one. He said his life lived large. If Gamaliel was talking about George Mueller, he would say, listen, if it's just him, none of this stuff is going to happen. But if it's God, you can't. Personally, he never took a salary. He gave away, never took a salary, just money. He had needs, and he prayed for his needs, and people sent money. And if, if you sent money to the children's home, he wouldn't use it for anything other than the children's home. He only used the money for what it was designated for, and he wouldn't take it if he didn't feel good about it. If he felt like you hadn't really prayed, he gave the money back to people. He waited, waited, waited. He prayed for two people for over 60 years every day. One of them became a Christian, I think, right on at the end of George Mueller's life. So, I mean, it's easy to romanticize what he did. And I've seen lots of guys go on the mission field and say they want to do what George Mueller did, but it's not out of conviction that God hears prayers because they don't want to have to write a support letter. It's not good enough. This guy was deeply convicted on the faithfulness of God and wrapped his whole life around it, never went into debt, never took a salary, never made his needs known, and waited and waited and waited. There's a 10-year stretch where he said it was down to the meal almost every day before food came in, before money for food came in. He took a journal. That's why those numbers are so specific. He wrote a report at the end of each year. There was a couple of years he didn't send it out that were lean because he didn't want people to think he was asking for money in an indirect way. But that's why those numbers are so specific. He said, I can tell you, listen to this number, 50,000 specific answers to specific prayers I prayed. 50,000. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Just a regular guy. Oh, I forgot. Never took a salary. Gave away, over the course of those 60 plus years, personally, $13.7 million. Unbelievable. His life points to this aspect of who God is. God is faithful, and he hears prayer. And you become convicted of something that he said to you. Through the word. If you become convicted of something that is revealed to you through the Bible about his character and his nature, and you wrap your life around that, he's going to come through for you. And so everyone, many people who looked at his life were able to say, God hears prayer and he can be trusted. And I was thinking about that for me and going, if somebody looks at my life, what do they think of how did what does that reveal to them about the character and the nature of God, if anything? If someone's looking at the way I live, don't hear this as condemnation. It's not. I just read this book, and I'd heard about him before, but I'd never read his biography. And I'm reading this, and I'm going, this is amazing to me. And he's just a regular guy and repeatedly says that. He was sick for about ten years. He wasn't never saw himself as anything other than. Just a humble servant. Never did anything to draw attention to himself at all. Never saw himself as a hero. And I think about that and I'm going, what about me? And what about y'all? When you look at your life, would you say, yeah, there's some things that I'm going for. There's some things that I'm engaged in. And if God doesn't carry the ball on those things, we're not making it. If God doesn't come through, that... That thing, it's not going to work. Is there anything, and again, don't hear this as condemnation, please. It's not the where it's coming from. Is there anything when you would say, man, if someone were to look at my life, this is what it would tell them about God. It's not going to tell them everything. You can't do that. You're finite. But when they look at you, would they say, man, God's good. I can see by the way he lives that God is good. I can see, think about the. Apostles, I can see by the way they're living that God's worth it. God's worth suffering for. That's what they may say about those 12. Or they may say God's powerful. They're looking at all these miracles. Or, wow, God's compassionate. We killed his son. And he's extending this offer of relationship back to us through these guys. And we are, these guys are getting beaten and jailed. But God's compassion for us is so great that they're sticking with it. I don't know. Again, don't hear that as a criticism, but just a question. When you think about your life, are you living it in such a way that it points, it, it reflects something about the character and the nature of Jesus? Have you become so convicted in your heart about some truth, about a Bible verse, about a truth about God's character, that you are wrapping your whole life around that? And you will be willing to do that persistently and consistently from now until the day you die. Let's pray. God, you're not looking for heroes and you're not looking for martyrs, for sure. You're looking for witnesses. That's what those 12 were. They were witnesses. That's what George Mueller was. He was a witness. He was a witness to the fact that you hear prayer. He was a witness to the fact that That you can be trusted. He was a witness to the fact that you provide. And God, you want every man and woman in this room to be a witness in general to the good news that you sent your son. And through his life, death, and resurrection, we can be reconciled to you. I believe there's specific things that you want each of us to be a witness to as well. It's a bigger life than, I don't mean grander life. I just mean bigger, fuller, richer, deeper, more significant life than just going to work and taking care of the house, even being great at our jobs. There's something, again, it's deeper and wider and it's thicker and fuller that you're what you're inviting us into. It lasts beyond the grave. It causes others not to look at us and say, man, you're awesome. It causes others to look at you and say, I know, I know him better. I see Jesus more clearly because of the way you're living your life. So God, in these next five minutes that we have together, would you begin to speak to us? Some people already know and they just need to be reminded. Some of us, we don't have a clue. God, we want to live a life. That unless you're actively involved with us on a daily basis, it's not going anywhere. We don't want to live such small and manageable and controllable lives that we can do it all on our own. It's not just dull. At some point, it's disobedient. You're inviting us into this. Into this grand work of making all things new. We've got a part to play in that. So speak to the men and women in this room, God. Speak to me. Speak to us collectively about the role Stonebridge plays. What are we to witness to? Again, no condemnation, God. I pray the enemy would not be able to take what hopefully is an invitation from you, hopefully a spurring on to love and good deeds. He would not be able to take that to beat people down and to wear them out. We'll remind them of all the places that they've come up short and that's not it's not the thing. What we would hear is you beckoning us forward. We would hear you behind us, cheering us on. God, we don't want to pull an Esau. We want to trade this birthright that you have for us for a bowl of soup. We want to trade this full and rich life that you've created for us. just for surviving or even thriving according to the standards and the ways of this world. So come, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak. I pray you would stir. I pray that you would inspire, encourage, empower all of the things that we need. Again, not to be heroes and not to be martyrs, to be witnesses to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. we well, have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. We would love to pray with you. If anything that I shared stirred anything in your heart, please don't walk out the door until you make some time.